James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. We're going to go as far as 18 tonight, but I'm just going to stop at verses 13 through 16 to start with. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. If you remember from our study last week, we looked at the fact that that we're, when we're in trials, and the trials have been used by God to accomplish His purposes and to cause us to rely on Him, when we're in those trials, don't say, well, God's tempting me. Because we are, a part of our trials will be temptations to not listen to God, to not turn to God, to go our own way. There's lots of temptations that will come up in our trials. And as we looked at last week, God is the one who orchestrates whether Satan's even allowed to tempt us or do anything in our lives. And since he orchestrates everything, one could see easily go to that extent of saying, like Adam and Eve did, as we saw last week, it's your fault, not really mine. And God, God's word says very clearly, go, don't go there, because God doesn't tempt anyone. When someone's tempted, we always want to say, the devil made me do it. No. What does the passage say? Each one is lured away and enticed by their own Desire. It's within each of us. That's why Paul himself said, even though I delight in God's law in my inner man, I have this problem. My flesh is right there. I find this law to be at work. That is, even though I want to do God's will, my flesh doesn't want to do God's will. And so we have to keep that in mind. So what I want to do tonight, though, is pick up where we left off, though. There's a depth of temptation that we need to get into before we can move further. And as I've been studying the book of James and noticing that this whole book just kind of flows together, we've broken James down into different sections about trials or section about needing wisdom or section about, you know, temptation and all this stuff. I've seen how this all ties together. You're going to see, hopefully, by the time we get there to verses 17 and 18, that verses 17 and 18 about God being a good God tie to everything we've just seen, but we need to go somewhere tonight. We ended up last week looking at the fact that we all still stumble in sin. Even though we've been forgiven, even though we're guaranteed eternity, we all still struggle with sin and stumble in sin. And to say we don't is a lie. But the issue for real salvation or not is not whether or not we sin. But it's lasting faith. That's the real issue. There are those who claim to be believers who look like one for a while, but when trials come, they go away. Or when the wealth, as we've looked at in James 1, when the wealth and the cares of this world come at them, they're lured away and enticed and they get choked and they're not, they weren't really saved. The real measure of real salvation is lasting faith. But there's another element to it that we're going to add tonight. And you're going to see that in the end of the section we're going to be starting to go to next. Go ahead and go to 1 John chapter 2. Go ahead and turn to 1 John 2. We're going to look at verses 15 through 29. The real issue we're also going to look at tonight is not only lasting faith, but whether or not you practice sin or whether or not you practice righteousness. In 1 John chapter 2... Look at verse 15. Listen closely to what God is saying through John on, along this line and along this area we've been looking at with sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, children, and you're going to see this word being very important to us later on tonight. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. I got to stop here real quick. And the prophecy guy in me has got to remind you, look closely at what the scripture says. We're in the last time period before the return of Jesus, the tribulation period, the seven years left for the nation of Israel and the return of Christ. The church age is the last section. Actually, Jesus, the Bible says the last days began when Jesus came to the earth. 
We're in the last days. And those of us at this age, 2,000 years later, are in the last of, last of the last days. And we're in the last hour. The church is going to be removed. And then will be that last seven-year period for the nation of Israel and the world. And Jesus returns in the millennial kingdom and so on. But because of this, he said there's an antichrist that is still coming. And we've seen many antichrists. That's how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to spend a little time tonight in 1 John to kind of deal with a depth that kind of was left off in James teaching on temptation because we need to deal with a clearer understanding of who we are in Christ, what God's word says about our position and all that so that we can be able to handle when the enemy comes at us in these times in which we still sin. Again, as you're going to see, there's going to be a balance that's going to come through the scriptures tonight that talk about the fact that we are a new creation. We've been forgiven. The Spirit of God, if He sealed us, we're going to be, we've been guaranteed eternal life. All those wonderful promises. Yet, as you're also going to see, there is also a clear teaching in scripture that we as Christians should never take sin lightly. We should never move to a realm where we say there really is no such thing as sin. Which, by the way... Many who claim Christ today are doing things that the Bible has long said are sin. Churches are even saying and putting out their little rainbow banners out in front saying we don't think it's sin. When the Bible says it's sin. I believe the Bible teaches that people are welcome, but we should still say sin is sin. But there was a problem in the early church, and it has continued on, and it's getting more rampant now, that there were those who were teaching that there really is no such thing as sin. Since you've been forgiven of all your sins, you're already forgiven. You really can't sin. And you're going to see tonight that the Bible actually says that for believers who actually continue in sin, this is for believers, people that have actually been saved, there are going to be physical consequences here on this earth because of that. Because they don't take sin seriously. And we're going to learn now tonight, hopefully through the Spirit giving us a little understanding, how to deal with the fact that we're forgiven, yet we still struggle with sin, and sometimes we stumble. But there's going to hopefully be a difference tonight that you come to understand about the difference between stumbling in sin and practicing sin. Do you understand the difference? And hopefully in time you will. Now before we go any further... We have to be reminded of who John, we're going to be spending a little time tonight in 1 John, who John's audience was. Go back to 1 John chapter 2 and look at verses 12 through 14, the, the verses right before where we just picked up. In 1 John chapter 2 verses 12 through 14, he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. There's a couple things I want to pull out from this and we've already hopefully seen it in 1 John 2 verses 15 through 29 as well. John's main audience is believers or unbelievers? Believers, very clearly. 
But he also knows that not everyone who claims to be a believer is a believer. But he also understands something else. That's why he says, I write to you children. I write to you fathers. I write to you young men. He said that twice, and he makes that very clear. He also knows that amongst believers, there's going to be many different levels of understanding and maturity. Some of you are still babies when it comes to the faith and your understanding of who God is and who you are in Christ. There are some of you that are actually a little bit more mature, but you're still young men, if you will. And there are those who've been walking with the Lord for a while, and you're further along, and the Bible would describe you as fathers, if you will. We're all at different levels, and that's why it makes, that what makes preaching a little tricky at times. Especially the bigger the group you speak to, there's going to be people out there that got PhDs in theology who are going to want to make sure you've dotted every I and crossed every T and there are going to be others who are saying, when you try to teach to those PhDs in theology, I don't know what you're talking about. Or if you try to preach to the babies who are new in the faith, the people who are the PhDs in theology are going to go, I'm getting nothing out of this. This is milk. And that's why those of us who teach need to understand that we need to trust that the Spirit of God and the Word of God is going to be able to hit all of those areas. If you try to preach to a certain crowd, you're going to miss some. And John understood this. There are Christians in varying levels of growth and understanding. And like I said earlier, the issue is not the stumble or two into sin, but the practice of sin versus the practice of righteousness. Go to chapter 2 again of 1 John and look again at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, we're going to go to chapter 3 now and look at verses 1 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Don't miss that. We're going to spend a little more time in the next verses here, but I want to stop. Make sure you hear that. Everyone who understands that you're a child of God and that he's righteous, we should be striving to purify ourselves as he is pure, we should be striving to live in the way in which he is. God himself said through Peter, be ye holy. Why? He said, because I am holy. You need to be holy. Now, as you're going to see in a little bit tonight, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. You can't do it. Yet we're told to do it. That's where this whole, by the way, you hopefully hear this over and over. All of life has been designed to make us rely on God. Everything that happens in your life, good or bad, has been designed to cause you to rely on him. Even the blessings, so that you would remember where the blessing came from. Now, go back to 1 John chapter 3, look at verses 4 and following. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, as you're going to see, go ahead and turn back to 1 John 1. We're going to go back and lay a little foundation that he laid earlier in this book about the fact that we all still struggle with sin. And anybody that says they don't, the Bible says you're lying and the truth's not in you. Yet at the same time, he then goes on and says... 
But those of us who still struggle with sin, who still stumble in sin, we should never make a practice of sinning. And for those of you that are in Christ, you know full well what I'm talking about. I want to show a hands. I want some honesty here. How many of you who are know you're saved? You can't raise your hand unless you know you're saved. How many of you know you're saved still sin? Good for you. Put your hands down. How many of you that just raised your hand when you still sin, does it feel good? No. No. There's a conviction. There's a grieving of the spirit. And that's why tonight we need to understand as we deal with temptation and sometimes stumble, there's a difference between stumbling and practicing sin. Because some of us can stumble enough that the enemy can come in and say, it's really okay. That's just who you are. God made you that way. Those of you that are men out there, I'm pretty sure I hit almost every one of you when I say we as men have to fight the temptation to lust after other women. It's a temptation that we're born with. Can we say to our wives, hey, that's the way God made me. It's okay. That, that's not going to fly, is it? In the same way, we have people saying, well, God made me this way, and that's why it should be okay. No, we're all born with a temptation to sin in one or many ways. But the Bible also says that the when things that God say are sin are still sin. And we need to learn now how to get some more victory in sin. You're never going to be sinless. But at least get more victory in sin so that you actually can be known as someone who is truly of God because you practice righteousness. On the whole, you don't stumble as much as, in other words, you do well better than you stumble. You should have more victories than losses. And so go back with me now to 1 John chapter 1 and look at verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. He says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him, from God, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth's not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we're in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he he walked. Now, do you see the depth of what we're getting into here? Who is he writing to? He's writing to believers or unbelievers? Believers. believers. But there may be a few unbelievers mixed in the group. But as a whole, he's writing to believers. And he says, if you guys are walking in darkness and say you've got fellowship with the Father, you're wrong. Oh, you haven't lost your relationship. That's signed, sealed, and delivered. If he's given you his spirit, he sealed you with his spirit, you're his child. But you can't say you have fellowship with God right now if you're walking in darkness. Now, I'm not talking you stumbled. I'm talking walking in it. That's why in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the scripture says, those of you who see your brother caught in a transgression, not you saw your brother slip up once, but those of you who see, see your brother caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. In other words, we, we, we're talking about the difference between practicing sin and stumbling in sin. And if you say you never stumble, you lie. The truth's not in you. And John says, I'm writing these things to you, though, so that you don't sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. But the ones who abide in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
Now, before I start breaking down how to have a little more victory in this area, I want to show something to you, though, this way. We must never take sin lightly. Does anybody know why we shouldn't take sin lightly? Because God doesn't. You want proof that God takes sin serious and doesn't take sin lightly? It's called the cross. That God would actually put his own son to death for sin. Shows you how serious sin is in God's eyes. But some of us might not still get this. God has actually shown sometimes that premeditated sin or unconfessed sin will cause God to shorten the time on earth for a believer. They're not going to lose their salvation if they've been sealed, but they'll lose their reward. I'm going to read this to you again, and I'm going to show you from the scriptures what I'm talking about. God has shown, and he determines when he does this, that sometimes premeditated sin, where you know it's wrong, God said, don't you dare, don't you dare, and you say, I'm going to do it anyway. By the way, isn't that what almost happened to Balaam? If the donkey hadn't stopped, God would have killed him. And he was going with premeditated sin when God had said, don't you dare. Premeditated sin or unconfessed sin will sometimes cause God to shorten the time on earth for a believer. Again, they're not going to lose their salvation. God's gifts are irrevocable. But they'll lose the reward. That's why Paul talked about not being disqualified. I'm going to show you that in just a little bit. But go to 1 John chapter 5. Look at verses 13 through 21. In 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13, John says this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Now, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that don't lead to death. Now, there is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Who is John writing to? Believers. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he goes and he says this. If you see your brother committing a sin, pray for him so they can be restored unless... This uh, promise of every request being heard and granted does not apply to those whose sins lead to death. I'm not talking about those sins. By the way, I don't know if you've ever looked at it this way or not. Have you all ever noticed how at the very beginning of the nation of Israel coming into the promised land, God showed that he took sin very, very seriously? When the nation of Israel was cross over the Jordan and then go to defeat Jericho, God gave very specific instructions. He said, no one takes any spoil from the city of Jericho. Normally when you wipe the city out, you get to take the spoils. He said, no one touches anything. It is all devoted to the Lord. Well, there's a man named Achan who actually took some gold bars and hid them in his tent. And then the next battle, there comes a simple little one, a little town called Ai, and they should have won easily, and they lost. And Joshua falls on his face and says, God, what's going on? God says, there's sin in the camp. And through God's spirit controlling which way the lot fell, God showed which family it was because nobody was fessing up. And what did God have them do to Achan and his wife and his kids in front of the whole nation of Israel? Stone them to death because of this sin. He showed at the very beginning of the nation of Israel coming into the promised land, I still take sin seriously. By the way, he does it at the beginning of the church age as well. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Let me give you a little backstory. In the end of chapter 4, you'll see a man named Barnabas sold a piece of property, gave all the money to the church for the leaders of the church to distribute however they felt God wanted them to. Well, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira said, hey, they got a little attention. Let's do the same thing. But they kept some of the money back for themselves, but pretended that they gave the whole amount to the church. And what did God do? He struck them dead. 
Oh, and the Bible then goes right on after that and said a huge fear broke out amongst the church. They started to take God seriously when it comes to sin. Folks, thank God for his forgiveness. Thank God for the fact that he separated our sin from us as far as the east or from the west. But don't ever fall into that lie of the enemy that God doesn't still take sin seriously. He does. And I won't turn there because of time, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as Paul's dealing with the church there in Corinth, not taking the Lord's Supper correctly, they weren't even sharing it with each other. They weren't even, it wasn't even a coin and knee meal at all. He said, because you're doing this in this way, some of you are sick and some of you had what? Died. Now, I got to be honest with you as a preacher, James, you know what I'm talking about. You always leery of preaching on this passage because if God chooses to kill me tonight, some of you are going to think, well, Jim was a sinner, man. He was doing something real bad. But you know what? The Bible is very clear that God gets to determine when he does that. And he's right and just when he does. Aren't you glad that every time you lied, God didn't strike you dead? There wouldn't be many of us here, would there be? I probably wouldn't be here to preach either. Yeah, let me just tell you, there is sin that leads to death because God still takes sin seriously. Physical death, not spiritual death. You're guaranteed eternal life if you've been saved. But there is physical death. The Bible teaches it very clearly. And let me put it to you this way. God pretty much has to say, you're doing more damage for me than good down there on the earth. I got to get you out of there. And we will lose our reward. Now, this is why Paul wrote what he wrote after the verses we saw last week about running the race for the crown. You brought up a question after the study, which I knew we were going to get to tonight. But go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and look at what Paul says about running the race to receive the crown. We're going to start in verse 24, but we're going to go all the way to verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete, athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. When Paul talks about being disqualified, he's not talking about losing his salvation. He's the one that wrote the book of Romans. Remember how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's the one that very clearly taught that if you are sealed by the Spirit of God, you're guaranteed eternal life and nothing will separate you from the love of God. Things we're going to look at tonight in just a little bit. But he also understood that there is waiting for those after salvation, or sorry, after this time of being saved or justified and sanctified, when we get to the glorification part of our salvation, there's the Bema Seat of Christ, where we'll be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether worthless or whether it's rewardable. And he's the one who wrote in 1 Corinthians 3 that there are going to be some who get into heaven just barely making it over the flames, but they will suffer loss. The Bema Seat is when we're going to receive our reward, our crown of not just life, but righteousness and glory and all those things. And so Paul said, I don't want to just get to heaven. I want to finish the race well so that when that day comes, I'm rewarded. I strain toward what's ahead, forgetting what is behind. And all who are mature, Philippians 3 verse 15, he says this, all of you who are mature will have the same view. You'll be looking for what is to come. That's why at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, he said, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I know there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the right Lord, the righteous judge will award to me, but not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. But look at what he says. An athlete, to just get a crown that perishes, a wreath of leaves, they go through intense Serious training. They say no to a lot of pleasures for that reward of that crown or the gold medal. How many of you have practiced saying no to your desires for unhealthy food when you're trying to improve your physical health? You know that it's better for you, and so you actually practice, even though everything in you wants the donut, 
saying no to the donut for the reward of what you're trying to do in the losing the weight or to get healthier, you know, blood pressure or whatever. So, too, we must practice saying no to our fleshly desires when trying to improve our spiritual health. That's why the Bible actually talks about the fact that it's on us. Even though it's, as you're going to see, God who does the work through us, we have to be the ones who actually put the effort into leaning on him and saying no to the flesh. And just like you practice physical training, the Bible says you need to practice spiritual training. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is where most Christians fail. They don't practice spiritual warfare. They don't practice the fact that they're in a battle. They don't practice saying no to the flesh. That's why Bible talks about fasting every now and then. It's a way of practicing saying no to your flesh for a season. And the more you practice it, the easier it will be for you when your flesh says, I want to. You've gotten good at saying no. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. By the way, that's another one of those scriptures that people don't realize said that Jesus died for everybody. He's the savior of everyone, but only those who believe are the ones who are going to get to receive it. Remember how we read earlier in 1 John 2, 2, he's a propitiation for our sins, but not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for everybody, folks. Don't let anybody tell you different. He didn't die just for the elect. He died for everyone. But only those who receive it by faith are the ones who are going to be saved. But he died for everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But at the same time, Paul tells Timothy, you've got a job to do between now and when you get to heaven. And you've been given a responsibility to teach people and to train them and to train yourself. Go to Titus chapter 2. You got something that the Tuesday night crowd didn't get. This scripture came to my mind tonight. They didn't get it. So you get, you get lanyap, as we used to say in Louisiana. Titus chapter 2, look at verses 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, the Spirit has come to indwell us and to empower us and to train us to live godly lives. Folks, this is going to be a battle until you die. Let me just help you out with that right now. I used to think that the closer I got to the Lord, the more time I spent in His Word, the more I just really grew in my love for the Lord Jesus, that the temptations would just all fall away. I really did. I thought, man, if I just get close to Jesus... The temptations will just fall away and all those things that used to tempt me won't even tempt me anymore because I'll be so spiritual. And then one day I was reading in the Gospel of Matthew how Jesus, on the night that he was to be crucified, was in the garden and he was tempted not to go to the cross. And it hit me. Do you think anybody was closer to the Father than Jesus at that moment? Oh, no, the intense prayer time and in the garden and just being ministered to by angels. And as close as he was to the Father, he was still tempted. And God spoke to my heart. He said, Jim, you will be tempted the rest of your life. 
And I've designed it that way to make you what? Rely on me. Folks, I'm going to have you look at your temptation in a different way. When temptation comes, and it all comes, it comes all the time. And for us, it's all different. But don't think you're the only one going through what you're tempted with. Others have been tempted with it. What you're going through is not uncommon to man. But I want to give you a different way to look at it. Instead of just saying, oh, no. Now is your opportunity to worship. Now is your opportunity to worship. When the temptation comes, and it will come, you have a choice. Do I give in to my flesh? God will forgive me. Or do I, here's an opportunity, Lord, to choose you. I worship you. Oh, everything in me wants to do this right now, but I choose you. Years ago, when my wife and I, and I've shared this illustration in years, years past, so I got permission to do so. When my wife and I were engaged, by God's grace, we were both virgins when we got married. I was 25, she was 21. But when we were dating, we used to like to go over to the beach side, because that's where she lived, and park our truck behind Sun on the Beach restaurant and watch the submarine races. You might know what I'm talking about. We went there to kiss a little. Because if you're watching submarine races, you can't see anything, so you might as well kiss. And while we were kissing, passion would arise. And the temptation to go further was very strong. We made a rule. If it's covered by a bathing suit, you don't touch it till after you're married. But the temptation to go further was very, very strong. And you know what we would do in those moments? We wouldn't go, we got to get out of here and go home. No, no, no. We went to the Lord. And we literally would stop and we would pray out loud. And I would pray a prayer, something like this. Lord, I really love Becky a lot. And right now, everything in my body wants to show her even more. But I love you more. And you've told us that it's best for us if we wait. And so we need your grace right now. And then Becky would pray. And she would say something similar. Lord, I really love Jim. My body wants me to give myself to him right now. But I love you more. We want your grace right now. Now, mostly we think we would go, let's just, we better go home. No. God's spirit would come into that truck in a way that was so cool that we actually could kiss some more. But that desire to go further had been taken away, and it was pure. What did we do in the temptation? We didn't try to fight the Lord. I'm mean, sorry, fight Satan. We didn't try to say no. We did what James chapter 4 says, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist him, and he'll flee. When we took our eyes off of what he was saying and put them on the Father, he left. Did you ever notice that in the scriptures, how the Bible says Satan left him when Jesus would fight? Folks, when those temptations come, and they're going to come. Choose your opportunity to worship. Now, let me also encourage you, you're not always going to do that. I'm going to tell you right now, thank God for the advocate that we have with the Father. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verses 19 through 22. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Sounds like Christians are having a lot of problems with temptation to sin, aren't we? We're reading a lot of passages about this. It's because it's very common. Now, in a great house, listen closely. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The Lord knows those are his. And he's ready to give help in time of trouble. When the trial or the test comes, he's there and he's waiting for you to call on him. And when you do, he will give you the way out, the victory. And on top of that, he'll move you from being someone that's unusable to usable. I don't know about you. I want to be used. I don't know what God's purposes or plans for me are long term in this preaching thing, but I want to keep preaching. And that's part of the reason I always tell my wife, said, Beck, I hope you understand I love you, but I'm going to be faithful to you too more because I want to preach. I, want to be, I don't want to be disqualified from being able to preach. But we, as we touched on earlier, we can't fight this fight alone. We will lose if we do. We need to remember our trials and our tests and temptations have come to bring us closer to God. Galatians 5.16, don't go there, but Galatians 5.16 says this. So I say, Paul says, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He's not going to say you won't be tempted. But if you walk in the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Ephesians chapter 6, we're not going to go there because there's so much we've got to cover in the last 15 minutes here. In Galatians, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about verses 10 through 18 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and authorities in the heavenly realms. Folks, we're, right, we're fighting against people and beings that are far more powerful than us and way more numerous than you ever could imagine. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. And it lists all the armor that he gives us, and especially the sword of the spirit, and the shield of faith. James chapter 4, again, because of time, we don't have time to go there. But in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, God, James is going to tell us when we get to James 4, don't you understand friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he goes on and he says, but God gives more grace. But he opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. By the way, if you say, Lord, I'll do better, that's pride. You will get no help from God. Oh, you're going you're gonna to do this, Jim? Go ahead, knock yourself out. By the way, on, as a preacher, I've stopped when I used to give invitations and still do. I used to stop. I've stopped asking people to rededicate their lives. Because most people came down the aisle and just rededicated their flesh. I promise to try better. I promise to live for the Lord now. And everybody got all excited. And you actually probably went down an aisle or two and promised God a lot of things. How'd you do? How long did it last? All you did was rededicate your flesh. I've come to realize, no, just, just rely on him and have him give you the victory. Let's go back now to James chapter 1. I think that is the book we're studying, but go to James chapter 1 and look at verses 17 and 18 now and look at this in the full context. He now goes on and he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's a couple things I want to pull out in the time we have left here, and I hope you can see it. One of the main ways to find help in our time of trouble is to remember that God is good and he's for us and not against us. I think part of the reason why many of us don't turn to God in those times of trouble is we feel guilty because we're tempted. We feel like we shouldn't be tempted. 
Lord, I thought I was past this. Lord, I thought I would. I, I thought I was further along in my maturity. Why is this thing still tempting me? I remember when I first started being a, 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 become a, 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 a maturing in my walk. I got saved when I was eight years old. But it wasn't until I met my wife at the time she was my girlfriend that I even knew what a quiet time was. No one had ever taught me about daily devotions and spending time in the word and meditating on God's word. And one day I went over to her house to go pick her up for a date. And she's sitting there with her Bible open and a little notebook. And she's writing in a Bible. And I said, what are you doing? She goes, I'm having my quiet time. I go, what in the world's a quiet time? By the way, I was a youth pastor at the time. And she said, no one ever told you about a quiet time? No. And so I actually started journaling back then. Oh, and by the way, if you ever go back and look at my old journals, January 1, 1988, Lord, today I'm going to start and I'm going to write in this book every single day. January 2, Lord, I love you. This is going to be an amazing journey. January 5, messed up a little bit there, Lord, but we're going to do better. January 20, Lord, I'm really sorry. I hope you'll take me back. Anybody else been there? But if you go back and read my early journals, too, when I would write to him, I would write to him about certain struggles that I had. Areas that I was losing against my flesh. Years ago, I went back and found some of my old journals. I found some when I was a new believer, and I found some when I had been, uh, I mean, not, not a new believer, but learned about de uh, devotionals. And, and then I found some so many years later. And you know what scared me at first? Because some of those things that I was struggling with, I was still struggling with 10 years later. And I thought, oh, no. I'm not maturing because that temptation that was tempting me back then is still tempting me now. And I thought I was a failure. I mean, I remember even getting to the point where I thought God had left me because there's no way he can put up with all this. I mean, good grief, you know, 70 times 7. I, 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 I blew past that number a long time ago. I remember one time when I was a single man and living in an apartment with my brother John. We had just gotten our first apartment. We moved out of our house, parents' house and lived in our own apartment, and it was a nice one. It was behind the ABC Liquor on Palm Bay Road. I'm sorry, on, on Babcock. You know where the ABC Liquor is there in Babcock? We were in the apartments right back there. We were living. And I had fallen to lust again in my mind, and I laid on the floor in that apartment begging God to take me back because I knew... I was no longer usable. And as I laid there on the floor, just begging God to take me back, he brought to my mind a song that I hadn't thought about in a while. Some of you are old enough to remember the group Petra. Do you remember Petra? There was a lead singer for that group named Greg X. Voles. And he went and made a solo album after he left Petra. And one of the songs on his solo album was called Take Me Back. So I jumped up and I grabbed the cassette tape of that song and put it in the cassette player in the boom box. <laughs> and I played that tape. And throughout the song, he's singing, will you take me back? Will you take me back? And the last line of the song says this, through my tears, my eyes were opened and I just had to laugh when I realized you never, ever let me go. Folks, one of the ways that will help you rely on the Father when the temptation comes and run to him is to understand that he's not up there going, you did it again. He's a loving father. Let me give you this illustration. Let's just imagine you're wearing a backpack. And the backpack represents sin. If you know, backpacks not only have the two straps for you to put over your shoulders, there's a, like a little loop of cloth at the top of the backpack that you can use to hang it on a hook or whatever. Let's just imagine you're wearing the backpack and it represents sin. And someone takes their finger and hooks it on that little loop and they start pulling it down. You're no good. You'll never get any better. You're doing it again. What a failure. God's really disappointed with you. Or let's imagine that someone comes Remember, the backpack represents sin, and they put their little finger on that hook, and they try to pull it off. You don't need this. 
This isn't good for you. I've got better things in store for you that I want to give you, but you got to get rid of this first. You're going to feel pressure either way, but one is going to make you feel like a failure. The other one is going to be building you up. And James goes from the trials to wisdom, to the temptations of wealth and all that, and don't think that you're being tempted by God. It's coming from within you. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Listen, with whom there is no shadow of turning. He's not going to change his mind. If he said he's who he is, that's who he is all the time. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, and not only that, of his own will, he chose to give us the eternal life and to make us, listen, to make us the first fruits of his creatures. In other words, he started something for his own glory and he desires to finish it. If you want to fight him on that, you're going to go home early, but you're going to miss out on a lot of reward. But if you're his and you're steadfast and you rely on him, even in the midst of the trouble, the Bible says he'll give you grace and not only reward here, but multiple reward in the life to come. And we have to mentally each day decide, I am going to train myself for godliness. I'm, when I fall to sin, Lord, I confess it. Forgive me. Oh, thank you that you have already forgiven me, but I receive that forgiveness. As I turn from this and let's get going again. You know when Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me? And then after Peter does, Jesus meets back up with him and asks him three times, do you really love me more than these? Remember that? Jesus never says, well, if you love me, why would you deny me? If you really love me, why couldn't you tell that servant girl that you believed in me? You understand what I'm saying? He never Pointed, he just simply said, what? Let's get going from here. Feed my sheep. Let's just get going from here. Peter acknowledged what he had done. He confessed it. And Jesus said, that's all we're looking for. Let's get going. Let's get going from here. And that's what we have. And so what I'm going to do tonight in the time we have left is I'm going to bomb you real quick with a rerun of Romans. Go back to Romans 5. By the way, that's the next book that our ministry is working on. Elise and I have already begun to write the study of the book of Romans, putting it into one shorter, condensed form. We're going to be calling it probably something along the lines of the handbook to the Christian life. The whole book of Romans is like the handbook to the Christian life. It deals with how salvation is accomplished, Jew and Gentile, God's eternal plan, all this stuff. It's a great book, and so we're going to be looking for that in the next Probably two, three years. That's how long it took us to write the first one. So good Romans 5. Look at verses 1 through, 11, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope or the certainty of the glory of God. And not only that. But we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, somebody might dare, scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Folks, if when you were his enemy and you were a sinner and you were powerless, 
He died for you. How much more now that you've been reconciled and that you're his child, will Jesus spare you from the wrath to come? Jump over to chapter 8. Look at verse 1. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, where, who are what? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has already set you free from Christ, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jump down to verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. That's the people that practice sin. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. And as you remember, he then goes on and he says, the stuff we're going through can't even be compared with the glory to be revealed. And then he goes on and says this, God has a purpose for the suffering, and we don't even know what it is or even how to pray in line with God's purpose. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, because he's praying in line with the Father's purpose for what he's putting you through. And then he goes and says, and we know that everything's going to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he's justified, he's glorified. And then he goes on and he says this. What more shall we say? If God's for us, who can be against us? If he didn't even spare his own son... How will he not also with him give us everything we need and give us all things? And then Paul goes on and he says this. Who's the one that's going to condemn you? By the way, you know who the condemner is? You know who the judge is? You all do know, right? No. Satan's not the condemner. He's not the judge. Who's the judge? Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, The Father judges no one. He's handed all judgment over to the Son. And then the Romans 8 says, Who the, Who's he that condemns? Jesus Christ. More than that, he died for us, was raised to life, and he's now interceding on our behalf. And Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing will separate me from the love of God. By the way, that means even your sin. When you stumble... And we all still stumble. Anybody say they don't stumble, they lie. When you stumble, run to the Father. He loves you. He's not going to berate you. He's going to say, let's, go, let's get going from here. We're going to use this as an opportunity to learn about your weakness. Oh, but when the temptation comes next time after that, don't try to fight him on your own. You already found out how well you do when you do that. What do you do? You run to the Father. You say, this is my opportunity to worship you. Lord, I want to do this right now, but I, I love you more. And I want what you want. And I need your grace. And he'll give it. And he'll give it. Jesus was God. Yet his flesh was so strong that he had to spend much time with the Father in prayer. How much more should we as well be people who learn to walk with God? Oh, by the way, I have a quiet time still. You know what it's called? All day. Oh, that nap's good too. <laughs> nap's real good. My quiet time has turned into almost all day now. Oh, there are times that I go and spend time alone with him. There's a need for that. But I have learned now how to walk with the Father. 
and to walk and talk to the Father and allow Him to put words, His Word into my mind, and He speaks to me and we talk. And I'm going to tell you right now, He has already told me what He wants me to do when I go to Israel. He just, he's made it real clear. He said, follow me. I'm doing something, and I've got you there for a reason, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. Each day, I want you just to follow me. You know, a lot of people go to Israel with this mindset. Oh, I want to see this, and I want to see the tomb, and I want to see Jerusalem, and I want to see Megiddo, and, and they have their agenda. God has made very clear to me. He said, I know what's in your heart, but I want you to not worry about your agenda. Just walk with me and experience what I have in mind. You know how he showed me this? Just reading through the Gospel of Mark. As I was reading through the Gospel of Mark, it became very clear that Jesus only had the agenda that his father had for him each day. And Satan and demons and people were all trying to get him off the agenda that the father had for him. And he said, don't do that. Don't let them get, the, off the, get you off the agenda I have for you. And I say the same to you as we leave. God's got an agenda for each of you tomorrow. Learn to walk with him. We're going to get on to the next section of James, not next week, but Lord willing, two weeks from tonight. I love you. Thanks for coming.